0: It's good to see everybody here this morning. A blessing to be here. Great to have Laura Sturton back this morning, helping lead in worship. Laura lives in Tucson now, but manages to make it back to visit her folks, and it's good to have her on stage helping lead. So, Laura, thank you. Turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 7 here in just a few minutes. And I don't know about you, but I'm very, very grateful for the growing number of Air Force officers that God has brought into our church family. If you know these guys, you know that they are quality men, they lead great families, they're great dads. And at the same time, they also serve sacrificially in our church, and I'm grateful for that. And, and as you also know, most of these officers are assigned to Vance as instructor pilots. So it's their job to take a young man who, on most occasions, has never flown an airplane has little working knowledge of its mechanics. It's their job to rigorously teach the young officer and then after 12 months or so that young man actually has the ability to fly with great skill the most expensive, most technical pieces of aircraft in the world. So it's quite a mission that they're on here in South Enid and it's my understanding that they do it very well. But Could you imagine what would happen If men like Doug and Daniel and Scott and Dustin, Will and Oak and Brian and Matt, and you probably didn't know there were that many instructor pilots in our church, but can you imagine if they took their student pilots and they never actually allowed them to fly the airplane? What if their students were never allowed to to touch the throttle or control the flaps, never allowed to practice a touchdown? Would their students get their wings? would they ever wind up in the seat of an A-10 or an F-15? I doubt it. Because letting them actually take the stick and fly the plane, having them learn firsthand that, that the plane is built to respond in certain ways, and for them to actually feel that response, my guess is actually flying the plane yourself is pretty crucial to the training process. And in our text today, we have something very similar going on. Since Jesus first called the twelve, since he first called these men to himself in chapter 3, he has been training them. He's been training this group, the twelve disciples we call them. And the very word disciple means learner. So the twelve have been learning from Jesus, listening to him teach, watching him heal, seeing his power and his compassion. But now... He's about to send them out. He's about to let them fly solo, as it were. And this mission is going to be a crucial part of what is going to be their long-term training. So if you're not in Mark 6, turn there. We're going to read, actually we'll start in the second half of verse 6, 6b through verse 13. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Mark writes these words. And he, he being Jesus, went about among the villages teaching. So Jesus has been rejected at Nazareth, his hometown, leaves Nazareth, and goes about his primary ministry, which is is teaching in the villages throughout Galilee. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. So here the text breaks down into two major sections, or at least I'm breaking it down into two major sections. Verses 7 through 11, we have Jesus giving some instructions for the mission of the twelve. And then verses 12 through 13, we have two details that outline the way the twelve are actually going to carry out that mission so let's begin with the first section as he sends out the 12. We read of the call, the charge, and the counsel of Jesus. First, the call of Jesus. That's the first thing you notice here. Very basically, that the calling of Jesus is to send them out. Initial calling was to gather them in, to have them follow him. Now, it is to send them out. And it's this sending that makes these men apostles. The word apostle means sent one. So they are transitioning from disciples or learners to sent ones or apostles. And further, to be an apostle implies that you possess the authority of the one that's sending you out. So these men, as apostles of Jesus, they are going out in the very authority of Jesus Christ himself. And here's what I want you to think about as we we move through this study of Mark. Mark has been establishing that Jesus is the ultimate authoritative king. The Messiah who has demonstrated his power over and over again, over every realm, the natural realm, the unclean, the sea, the demons and sickness and the Sabbath and forgiveness, even death itself. He has demonstrated an authority over all things. And now he's giving that authority to these 12 men. Which is a little startling when you think about it because when you read today's passage and you think about our study, these guys have done absolutely nothing. Sure, they, they followed Jesus, so there's this hint of obedience there. Levi threw a dinner party for Jesus. They fetched Jesus a boat when he needed one. But, but outside of those things, these guys have really they've not done anything at all. All the preaching, all the teaching, all the healing, all the deliverance from, de- from demons, all the raising of the dead, Jesus has done all of it. So, so everybody, in order to experience Jesus' teaching and experience his power, they had to be where Jesus was. And so because of this, the crowds grew progressively larger and larger and larger, to, to the thousands and even the tens of thousands. And the larger they got, the harder it was for Jesus to minister to everyone that he wanted to minister to. So Jesus multiplies his ministry reach by now sending out his disciples, by giving them authority, thinning out the crowds, maximizing some ministry. Jesus thinking very strategically here, and ultimately he's training these 12 men. We also notice that in this calling, that they were sent out in pairs. So six teams of two. Now why did he send them out in pairs? This seems inefficient. The ancient historian Josephus tells us there were not 203, not 205, there were 204 towns and villages in first century Galilee. So that's a lot of work ahead of these guys. And they'd cover twice as much ground if they went out one by one. But instead, Jesus sends them out two by two. Now, why? Well, consider the words of Solomon. These words Mike Miller read last night at Kylie Hurst and Joe Day's wedding. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls... The one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Two are better than one. Two get more done than one. We think further about the New Testament epistles. They're filled with these one another passages, about 52 of them. Commands that urge us to love one another and encourage one another and bear one another's burdens and so forth. And what's ultimately communicated in those passages? That your walk with Christ, your ministry for Christ, it cannot be a solo project. We are never meant to go it alone. You can't survive. You can't grow. What little impact you might have is always in danger because you are always in danger You are exposed when when you are out there with no accountability and no partnership in the gospel. Two are better than one. There was a precedent for this two-by-two ministry found in Deuteronomy. So the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 19.15, says that a credible testimony is backed up by what? Two or more witnesses. So for one of these apostles to go into a village to preach, his testimony of Jesus Christ receives confirmation by his companion. And this pattern is carried over to the, ministry, the missionary journeys of the early church because you always have two. You have Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Epaphras. even plays into how the book of Mark is written. Mark was the ministry companion of the apostle Peter. The gospel of Mark is the eyewitness account of Jesus as told by the apostle Peter. It's written down by Mark, and that's why we're studying it today. It was a faithful Testimony. As I mentioned, being sent carries with it authority. And notice how Mark highlights a specific kind of authority given to the twelve. It's the power to cast out demons. And this is important because just about everywhere Jesus has gone, he's encountered demons or unclean spirits. And so he knows that his disciples... As they go in his authority, they're going to encounter them as well. So he gives the twelve power over them. And what you should take from that simple detail, how you should apply that is this, that God never calls us without giving us the power to accomplish the task. God never calls us without giving us the power to accomplish the task. I think of In your bulletin today, Angie and Karis Delaplane, they're going to Vancouver on a mission trip next month. God would not be sending them there without the power to do the work. Some of you might be considering going to Niger to drill water wells this this November. And maybe you're not sure if you're up to it. Please know that God would not send you there without the power to accomplish the work. Some of your burden, for your neighbor or a coworker, God would not be compelling you to share the gospel with them and then leave you powerless to do the work. Maybe you remember the last thing that Jesus did before ascending to heaven. The last thing he did, he, he gave a commission to his disciples, and in that commission was a promise of power. The promise was that they would receive power from the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. And now 2,000 years later, you and I are given that same promise, meaning we have the same resource for God's power that these disciples were given. It's the Holy Spirit. And it may not be employed, we may not employ it the exact same way, none of us are writing scripture or casting out demons, but that's not the work God has for us to do. He has different work for us to do. But whatever it is God is calling you to do, God will provide the power to do it. So that's the call of Jesus. Next, the charge of Jesus. Interestingly, Jesus is sending them out and tells them not to take anything with them. They don't know how long they'll be gone. They don't know exactly how far, how far they'll be traveling. But Jesus gives them a very limited packing list. This reminds me of my days in youth ministry a little bit. I'd take kids to youth camp and I'd send home the obligatory packing list. You know, going to be gone a week, here's what you need to bring. Bible, notebook, pen. You always start with Bible, notebook, pen. Closed-toed shoes, bedroll, flashlight, change of clothes. And if it's a junior high trip, you always list deodorant. Deodorant. Because you know the seventh graders they're not going to take a shower. And I can tell you from experience that about three, three and a half days is the point where a seventh grade boy, no amount of like axe body spray, can cover up the funk that's that's beginning to cover a seventh grade boy. It's just the bacteria begins to get exponential and multiply. But Jesus says, Don't take a bag. Don't pack anything, no food, no provisions, don't take a money belt. A money belt, that was the customary place they'd carry currency. It was in the pockets of a belt. And what's implied in not taking a money belt? Obviously, it's that they're not to take money with them. But the other thing implied there is they aren't to receive money either. Jesus forbid this because he's training them that their ministry is not a business opportunity. It's not an offer to get rich, and one of the reasons Jesus prohibits this is because God's word tells us all the way from the oldest books of the New Test or the, excuse me the Old Testament, where it mentions false teaching. It tells us that false teachers are always in it for the money. False teachers get rich off people who suffer, and Jesus does not want His apostles confused for those teachers who are in it for the money. And the reason this is so relevant for the disciples is because sick and suffering people will pay someone just about anything if they think they can help them. Particularly in the first century when medicine was much more superstitious than it was scientific. The suffering would give anything for an actual cure. And the problem was nobody had an actual cure. Remember the lady with an issue of blood? She suffered 12 Years, the scripture says she went broke, trying to find a cure. Doctors had squeezed out of her every penny she had. This is what made Jesus' ministry so popular. He could actually heal. He could actually heal, yet he didn't turn it into a way to get rich. Certainly that opportunity was there, but no way. He wouldn't have thought of it. So he's teaching his disciples the same Thing. And it's too bad, it's just too bad that today's televangelists and these faith healers that they have not followed this example. Because many of these men, they, they, they twist the message of the gospel, they proclaim a power that they don't actually have, and they use it to take advantage of suffering people. They manipulate millions of people out of millions of dollars every year, and they do it through the promise of healing And how do they get away with it time and time and time again? Because desperate people will pay if they think there's hope, if they think there's healing there. They will send in that love gift just to receive the handkerchief that the faith healer has prayed over. But it's all powerless. It's all a sham. Those people, they can't heal you. They're they're just after your money. Jesus would condemn these kinds of false teachers. Later in Mark 12, verses 38 to 40, he says, false teachers take advantage of widows. They literally take away their houses, extort them of their money. So this was a reality the 12 had to face. They would raise the dead, and they would heal all the sick, and they would deliver those that that, that were possessed by demons, and the great temptation would be to cash in on it, especially Judas. Judas was probably the most upset at this command, but Jesus makes it clear that's not how it's going to be. Don't take a money belt. You're not going to need it, because you're not going to take money. So the charge from Jesus is clearly, y'all need to be traveling very light. And it's fascinating, what Jesus instructs the twelve to take are the exact items the Israelites were told to take on their flight from Egypt in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, God didn't want his freed people to be weighed down. He wanted them to trust him, trust that he would take care of them and lead them to the promised land. And I really do think there's something kind of interesting in that similarity. I think this is a sign from God of the beginning of a new era in redemptive history, a new kind of exodus, a new kind of freedom out of a pagan land, but this time the pagan land is Israel itself. It's not Egypt. So this this mission that these disciples are going on, it's the start of the gathering of a new nation— And these twelve ordinary men, they are the leaders of that new nation. They are the leaders of a new kingdom. The twelve tribes are reconstituting themselves in these disciples, in these apostles. And they're going out to pronounce judgment on the old system, judgment on the corruption and the evil that existed within first century Judaism, and they're saying God is doing something new. he says you can take a staff but not a new staff just take the staff that you have wear sandals you don't have to go barefoot sandals are fine but only wear one tunic basically one shirt a lot of times a man traveling he'd carry two tunics in case he had to sleep outside he could use the other one as a blanket jesus says take only one so just a fascinating charge here by jesus if they're going to be his apostles they're going to need to learn to trust So that's the challenge here. He's training them to trust, to trust God's provision and his care, to trust his providential plan that wherever he leads them, he's going to take care of them. But one of the ways you need to make sure you approach this particular passage is understanding that it's not universal in its application. We can't look at this and then adopt an attitude that says to follow Jesus is to live off the bare minimum. That's not exactly what's being stated here. That might be the impression that we get, but what Jesus is telling these apostles, it really only applies here to this particular mission as a part of their particular training. And I can say that with some confidence because of Luke chapter 22, verse 35 and 36. Go ahead and turn there. You might mark it, or maybe your Bible already has the cross-reference pointed out. But Luke 22, 35... He said to them, Jesus said to the disciples, and this is a look back. He says, remember when I sent you out with no money belt and no bag and sandals? You didn't lack anything, did you? What did they say? Nothing. Because they didn't lack anything. So it's good to know that God will provide there are going to be times, and there have been times in all of our lives, when we were in desperation, wondering where in the world we're going to be able to get what we need. How are we going to make it? We've got nothing left. We're going to have to trust God to do something here, to provide, to save the day. That's all we can do. Look at verse 36. But now, he says, but now, now is different than then now whoever has a money belt take it along likewise a bag which assumes is, which is, you can you know, pack it up and fill the bag and whoever has no sword sell one of your coats and get a sword so it's not going to be easy out there you may have to defend yourself against an enemy you're going to need supplies so here in Luke 22 this is the normative way plan, prepare, accept what God has provided be wise, pack it up do what you're going to do But for the 12 initially, in Mark 6, for this training mission, the lesson was dependence. The lesson was trust. The lesson was relying on God to make a way. So this mission, this training mission is a call. Jesus gives a detailed charge about what to do. And then verses 10 and 11, he gives some counsel. He gives some counsel. Jesus provides some counsel first about hospitality. And this might be difficult for us to relate to, but still today in the Near and Middle East, hospitality is hugely significant. It's a big deal. Therefore, when Jesus says to them, basically, where you stay, stay there. You're going to come into town. You'll arrive virtually anonymous. You'll be offered a place to stay. You'll probably just have to take what you can get. It might be nice, but maybe not. But then as you start to preach and do miracles, you might get offers to stay at some really nice places. So Jesus is saying, don't take an offer like that. Just stay put. Stay put. Don't risk damaging the relationship you have with the person who offered you hospitality by going somewhere nice. Don't risk the appearance of pandering to those with wealth. Don't let any of that get in the way of your mission. I think it was two weeks ago, I mentioned going to Mexico and Central America on mission trips, probably seven or eight times I've been in those parts of the world. And the best trips were always when we stayed with a host family. And one time I remember, and typically we would go to the Sonoran region, the Sonoran Desert of Mexico, where it gets pretty hot, 110, 115 degrees. And my accommodations were—they were pretty simple. Um, a bed, no air conditioning, pretty rough neighborhood. Uh, you know, one of, those, one of those showers where the water just kind of trickles and uh, doesn't really spray. Maybe more it more just drips. Pretty rough accommodations. And on that same trip, I remember one of the other leaders was staying in a house with air conditioning. And with their own room. And with good running water, with water pressure and a pool and an extra bedroom with nobody in it. Hey, dude, just come stay with me. He said, you know, you're, you're the leader. You, you, you need a good place to stay. What could I do? I, yeah, I had to stay with my original host, right? I couldn't risk that. I, 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 I couldn't sacrifice that. I couldn't communicate something that was really even antithetical to this that's the principle behind the counsel here. The other bit of counsel is to, when they depart from a place where they are rejected, when they depart, they're to do something very significant. Into verse 11. Shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Because these apostles are sent by Jesus... A rejection of the apostles is a rejection of Jesus. So it's a rejection of God. Therefore, the act of of shaking the dust off their feet connects with something Jews in the first century already did. Jews of this day, when they traveled outside of Israel, when they reentered the land, just before crossing back into Israel, they would shake the dust off their feet as not to bring the unclean dirt of the Gentile nations into holy israel it was a custom sort of like singing oklahoma when you cross over the red river after being in texas right this kind of unwritten rule at least it's an unwritten rule in our house maybe i'm unique there and by instructing the disciples to do this the disciples were delivering a testimony about what it means to reject jesus essentially what that action communicated was to reject jesus And to reject the apostles is to reject Jesus. To do that is to be unclean. Therefore, these disciples are ushering in a kingdom where being clean or unclean isn't connected to ethnicity or food laws or disease. It solely has to do with how you respond to the message of Christ. So that's the call, charge, and counsel of Jesus to the twelve. That's how he's sending them out. Let's look briefly at what they did once they were sent. Verses 12 and 13, we see the message and ministry of the 12. The message of the 12 was one simply of repentance. They proclaimed or preached, the Greek word is caruso that people should repent. And that was the message of John the Baptist. That's the same message Jesus had been preaching. Therefore, it's the message the twelve are preaching. So just imagine it. The Son of God came all the way from heaven. He brought the very words that God gave him to teach the world. And what were those divine and heavenly words? Repent. So they're not sent out to be apologists or great defenders of the faith. They're not commentators or Bible teachers. Their message is a proclamation. It is to repent. And herein lies why people are offended at Jesus. It's not Christianity's message of grace that offends people. No, people kind of like that. It's not the message that a man would die for his enemies that offends people. No, that's what a wonderful example that is. It's the message that says, You are the enemy. That you're so bad off, he had to die. For you. Now that offends people. And what's interesting about that is that everyone sort of knows that they're deeply flawed. Everyone in the world knows that, that they're kind of messed up, they're broken, sinful, we call it. But they're very quick at the same time to be offended when the Bible explains how and why they're flawed. And not only that, they are offended by how ordinary the means of salvation actually is. Salvation is simply an act of repentance and faith. It's saying, "Yes, I'm a great sinner, and Jesus Christ is the only savior," and then trusting in Jesus. That is so simple that it offends people. Again, it's like Naaman I mentioned last week, 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman suffering with leprosy, and, he, and he's told to go dip in the Jordan River. He does that. If he does that, he'll be healed. And he's outraged because if that's all it means to be healed, well, well anybody can do that. And as a mighty man of valor, see, Naaman expected to, be, he expected to be told to do something great. To achieve something noble, you know, to bring back the broomstick of the wicked witch of the West. You know, throw the ring into in the fires of Mount Doom. Something valiant, something heroic. Not repentance. Repentance means I have to own what's wrong with me. And by own it, I mean I have to say that it's mine. I have to possess it. I have to own what's wrong with me. Call it what God calls it. And then experience a change of mind about it. Repentance means I must be humble because God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. So repentance isn't simply sorrow or guilt over sin. No, it's actually seeing the sin as repugnant and vile and an offense to God. That is repentance. And what we need to know is that repentance isn't punishment. Repentance is actually a blessing. It's the kindness of the living God that leads us to repentance, not the fury. And if if you're here today and you're thinking about trusting in Christ, you're thinking about believing in the gospel, you need to know that that involves repentance. Yes, it's embracing the good news that in Jesus we have eternal life. That is good news. But it's also embracing with equal vigor and equal conviction the bad news that we are sinners and we are destined for hell. And it took the sacrifice of God to atone for our sin. It's realizing who you are, but also realizing that you're so loved God lifts you up out of your sin and gives you his righteousness. So the message was repentance. And the message is still repentance by the way. It's still repentance. We need to be preaching that same message. The ministry the ministry of the 12 is outlined in two ways. twofold. They were driving out demons. Jesus had given them power to do that. So they're driving out demons. And they were anointing people with oil, healing them. And it's only here in Mark, Mark chapter 6, and also in James chapter 5, these are the only two places in the New Testament where healing is mentioned alongside being anointed with oil. So what made them use oil? They'd never seen Jesus use oil. We have no occasion where Jesus used oil to heal people. He'd use his own spit before he used oil, right? Well, I think if we look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament helps us here and helps us understand why they used oil. If you remember in the Old Testament, how were kings anointed? Kings were anointed with oil. And what that anointing symbolized was the king's connection to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. As we start to think through that picture, we get close to seeing why the disciples used oil. They used oil because they were sent In the power and the authority of Jesus, and Jesus was the anointed one. He was the true king. He was Israel's true Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. So their use of oil was a way of demonstrating that their ministry was in solidarity with Jesus' ministry. It wasn't magical oil. Power wasn't in the oil itself. It was symbolic And that would be the same reason we might use oil if we're praying for someone's healing today. We we wouldn't use it because there would be power in the oil. No, we'd use it because the oil symbolizes solidarity with Jesus. Solidarity with the anointed one of God, the healing power of the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity. That's the purpose of the oil. And so that's their ministry. It was a ministry of both word and deed. Message and action. Really, it was a perfect summary of what Jesus had been doing throughout the book of Mark. The ministry of the twelve was an exact duplication of the ministry of Jesus. Great teaching, calling to repentance, and validating that teaching and that call by doing wondrous acts or miracles. That's what's going on in this training mission. And I want to conclude by pointing out that in this passage we have another instance of interpolation or what we've been calling the Markan sandwich, the Markan Oreo. So jump down to verse 30. Verse 30. The apostles then returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So we have the start of the narrative that we went through this morning, verses 7 through 13. We have the conclusion of the narrative here in verses 30 and 32. And then what is the filling of the Oreo if you look at verses 14 through 29? the account of the death of John the Baptist. And that's what we're going to look at next week and see how the death, the execution, the beheading of John the Baptist, how the rich meaning of that helps us interpret this mission of the Twelve. Let's pray together. Father, you're Your word is such a gift to us. There's so much here, and there's so much for us. Lord, I pray that um, just through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, when we read it, when we study it, you would just give, give us a handle on what you're teaching us through it. And God, maybe each of us has a different way of applying what has been written here. Lord, I pray that, again, the Holy Spirit would do his work and work out that application in our lives, that we would not be a people that simply come here and read and listen and walk away unaffected, but, God, we would take it in, that both our hearts and minds would just be stirred by your truth. This word is from you, for us. God, may we not take that for granted. God, when we think about repentance this morning, Lord, I pray that that we would not think of repentance as a one-time event. It's not something we did initially, and now we are moving on to other things, but God, that our lives would be characterized by repentance. As Adam said, that we would be a repenting people, spouses repenting to one another, fathers repenting to their children church members repenting to one another. That, God, that is not a punitive thing. It's not punishment from you. It's not meant to shame us. But, God, it's meant to free us. It's it's meant for us to be honest with ourselves and with other people. God, it's meant for us to see how badly we need you. And there's not a one of us in here today that can say we don't need you. Lord, I thank you for this testimony of the disciples that went out. You did great things through them. And you taught them trust. And you taught them what it meant to be used by you. God, I pray that we, as, as obstinate and stubborn and clueless as we are, we would somehow be used by you, that you would give us power to do ministry in your name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.